0: Hello and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Joe Marchesi, who is a serial entrepreneur and has also started a few VC funds, including Human Ventures, Casa Comos, Groundswell, Truex, Reserve, and Attention Capital. I'll be honest, his resume is pretty wild. Joe has so much experience within marketing and advertising, so on today's episode, we're going to focus how to approach marketing channels, what channels are still undervalued, that you maybe can get more bang for your buck, and his approach to building brands and partnering with exceptional entrepreneurs. Without further ado, here's Joe. Joe, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm great, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you, doing well. So you've had a pretty interesting career. How did you get your start first of all in media and advertising? It's funny, by accident would probably be the best best way to say it. I, I you know I worked at
1: monster.com and if you think about like job boards back in the day, this is like 2002, uh, 2001, job boards are just advertising jobs, right? So it was kind of advertising to begin with and it was when Monster was disrupting the, the whole job search space and was one of the biggest advertisers. And then uh, went on to do some consulting and, and kind of, at that time, MySpace was, was one of the biggest publishers in the world. And that was, it's really funny that we're in a Web3 world now where everyone's like the community, the community, uh, the community. And we kind of stumbled across this idea that like, why can't the people who are on MySpace like get, you know, earn something for the advertising's on their page? And so that was, that was how we got into advertising, but it was really through kind of tech startup world.
0: Got it. So almost as well, maybe a little more of like a, a UGC type of um, w- way in terms of how you how you just thought about advertising and maybe ahead of you know the whole kind of creator economy, which is right now yep. you know very uh, top of mind for people. You were already kind of thinking about this way back in the early two thousands.
1: Yeah, yep, yeah, But like, like they say, uh, being early is worse than being wrong most of the time because then you have conviction and, you, and you're still wrong. <laughs> so I'm not sure that was better.
0: So you had this idea back in, I guess, the early 2000s. That was, I like your start into advertising. Where did you kind of go with that in like the early kind of web 2.0 spot? We developed a company called
1: Social Vibe for a long time that basically did focus on that, where every publisher of a MySpace page could put up their own brand badges and like they were getting sponsored, right? Like any athlete or celebrity could, and then they'd earn points for charity. And that was the, the original concept. And then comes along kind of the Farmville days, where you could earn points or credits for you know engaging with you know there was a, there was a lot of stuff before us, but what we brought to it was engage with the brand and earn your farm credits. And the the real idea. There was, or what was novel, was just on-demand advertising. Like, like you didn't need interruptive advertising. Why couldn't you go to what was then called for Farmville the offer wall, engage with Coca-Cola and Nike and and Lexus, and then go back and play your game instead of in-game advertising? And so that was, I mean, I think that was the most novel part of it. And then that taking that tech later after spending some time in TV world uh, and applying it fully to television is kind of is where Truex came from. And that was a company that I sold to 21st
0: Century Fox. You're a serial entrepreneur. You founded many companies. Was that always your ambition growing up? Did you always think that one day you were going to be an entrepreneur, or did you kind of just no? I, I, I hate to use a phrase, but kind of like fell into it just based off of like your curiosity.
1: When I was a kid, I wanted to be a bank teller because that, because they had all the money back there. That was, I still remember opening my first bank account and going in and being like, this, this, that looks like the job for me back there. I went to school and I would have gone to school for philosophy, except for I found out that that doesn't have a lot of paying careers that, that I would have liked afterwards. So I, I did uh, economics and finance. And that's because economics is the closest thing to philosophy of money. So I I guess I kind of I really got got interested in what motivates people to do things. And it's funny when you think about it that way, economics and advertising aren't aren't all that different in that like you're you're trying to figure out people's motivations and then uh and then work against
0: Yeah, absolutely. I guess it's all about um incentives and really understanding the question that we always um ask on this show is why why do people buy what they buy? Mm-hmm. And how that can be actually pretty irrational and not really rational. What do you think is still maybe since you've worked obviously um, online with with online advertising as well as you know linear TV and TV advertising? What maybe advertising channel do you think is still maybe underappreciated by brands or entrepreneurs of today? I think an easy way to think about it
1: is that Facebook, Google, Amazon, the performance marketers of today, have convinced everybody: if you can't measure it, don't buy it. Which makes me think everything that's hard to measure is undervalued. So then think about what's really hard to measure. Billboards, out of home, hard to measure. Uh, Disclosure, I'm on the board of, of Clear Channel, a billboard company. But I do it because I think that it's just such an amazing medium. You know, podcasts, not playing to the home crowd here, but like hard to measure, Highly effective sponsorship, just in general, is is hard to measure and highly effective, right? So, like, just I think there's a category, and and I I, we talk to a lot of startups. I think there's 65 plus now at the Human Portfolio. Some we spend a lot of time with thinking about brand and. This leap from performance marketing to test out a concept to brand building where you're going, quote-unquote, above the line, buying a billboard. How do I know if it works, right? Well, I've got bad news for you. It's going to be a lot tougher than you think. Like Anyone who gives you an easy answer is gaslighting you a bit as to as to what the outcomes are going to be. And I think that's, that's kind of the insight in the last couple of years, spending time with, with startups, making the leap from, okay, I can test it out in performance channels, but now I need to build a brand over time. And so I think that those are the underappreciated channels, which are the hard to measure ones.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you even think, though, like now, maybe they're even more um, underappreciated since we're in this kind of age of COVID? And I think what's top of mind is, oh, well, our consumers are at home. Oh, they're consuming so much media. So we got to pump more money into performance marketing instead of maybe these other areas like billboards, like, oh, people aren't driving because they don't go to work. Or do you think that right now is even more kind of underappreciated than before?
1: Yes, but I mean, look. Obviously, in the height of COVID, it was fairly like, like that people weren't out of, out of home as much. But I think for sure, I don't know if it's so much that the, the big agencies they know where people are. They've got they've got their media mix modeling. They, they understand like how things are working. So like the same thing with television, like the G R P share of of each network sets like 80% of how much money they're going to get and then everything else is around the edges. So, I don't think they're underappreciated for that. I think they're I think the they're undervalued because the performance marketers are getting an unfair share of the total pie because they know who's going to be most likely to buy a product and then they get everyone's in a rush to try to get attribution for when that product gets bought. And because of that, you have a stuffing of the bottom of the funnel and an overinvestment there. And so therefore, the share of pie at the top for these, again, I, I hate to say upper funnel because someone could see a billboard and then go buy something. It's just not as connected, right? It's, but that's not the point, right? It's, it's not the only one. There's a great blog that I'd read a, a while back that advertising doesn't work like that. Right? And the idea was that the way brands are built are is building social currency. I don't want to advertise just to the people who buy my brand. Or I don't want people to just the people who buy my brand to know what my brand is because otherwise people can't talk about it. And so like so all those wasted impressions that are getting negotiated away weren't really wasted if you're building a brand.
0: It reminds me just of, of a conversation I had with Brett Thomas, who's one of the general partners at Kavu, and I think he came from like the hedge fund world and wanted to Uh, Was very much interested in investing in startups. And what his value add was billboards. He knew someone, I forget if it was a family friend or one of his friends, that owned billboard sites and always had maybe like a little bit of leftover inventory. And so his value add would be hey, for brands, hey, let's put you on this billboard since there's a bit of leftover inventory and we can do it at a discount. And it was this one vodka brand and they got, they put one in New York and one in Miami and sales actually uh, soared pretty well. And that was the only like offline marketing channel that they did. If
1: you think about some of the most traditional (laughs) of TV advertising, and you you look at the businesses that have been built on it, like you know the fact that My Pillow guy can build a whatever multi million dollar business with the pillow brand, like just going through the oldest channels, makes you think for a second there that if some of the entrepreneurs that that we know were, were kind of tackling that and like looking at those channels differently, it'd be a real opportunity.
0: How else do you think about, I mean, just in terms of traditional channels, like obviously dependent on the brand, but like Super Bowl ads or ads for I don't know, the Oscars are down now and they have been for the last couple of years, but even for like the Emmys or the Oscars and what have you, do you think that is still worth it? Oh yeah, for sure.
1: Events like that, it's oil. You can turn it into jet fuel or you can turn it into sludge, right? Like you have to refine it into something. This is the problem with media right now, which is like, is it worth it to buy a Super Bowl ad? I don't know. It depends on what you put in it. If you put something in there that, it, like, so the hardest part about thinking about media and each channel as a partner in helping to build a brand is that they probably work with more than one brand in your sector. I know, like, NBC works with Toyota and Chrysler and Ford. They're only offering up a chance to talk to the audience. Then, like, how do you price the car? 90% plus is the product, the price, the, the creative that goes in there. So there's so much more to it. That doesn't mean that the, whether the channel is good or not. Now, I would definitely argue. That the Super Bowl is like because of its rarity is, is incredibly valuable. I, I think I once kind of issued a challenge. I would be willing to bet that like there is not a digital platform on earth that could deliver what the Super Bowl delivers, even if you gave them a month. And what I mean by that is that the Super Bowl is guaranteeing you near guaranteeing, we'll see how many people because people actually sit and are attentive during the commercials like 100 million US households with multiple people per household glued to the TV, it takes up the entirety of the screen and it plays for 30 seconds, right? Think about what you'd have to do to get 100 million uniques for the full screen for all 30 seconds with the sound on. I mean, Facebook could do a, like a, a homepage takeover for everyone who comes to Facebook and would they play through? Would YouTube do that where they force everyone who comes to YouTube to go through? It is a, such a huge number, and so it's, it's impossible. Now, you better have a product that is really, really valuable, and you're going to, like, a creative that works. Otherwise, no, you're, you're going to light a lot of money on fire. If you have the product that works and you've got the right message, uh, it's, it's one of a kind for a reason.
0: I think also with anything like this I mean definitely the Super Bowl for sure as the center point but even with anything that's non-digital non non kind of growth marketing the perception of the brand is also much bigger than maybe the brand actually is if you're a small brand and you get on a billboard it makes you look a lot more legitimate or bigger maybe than you are versus you know a Facebook ad because you know Facebook ads are cheap there's really not a lot of friction there
1: it's kind of a lot of like meta signaling not to use meta for Facebook meta is in the original meaning of meta. Um, but like, you know, the Facebook ads work, but like, I don't know that everyone else is seeing that. I just know I'm the only one seeing that. And I don't know if that's just targeted at me. And when I see a billboard, I know everyone around me sees that meta understanding or meta signaling that this, wow. Okay. They're legitimate. Cause that, that's going to be there for, and they, that has its own value beyond what the message that goes on it. And that's true in television, it's true in a 30-second spot, it's true. I mean, people can see kind of a a value of a spot beyond what the message is, like what it must have cost to get there and to produce the spot and then the message. So it's like so you get this kind of other value but it's dangerous because it does cost money. So if, if you do all that and then the message doesn't deliver or the price and product aren't good, they, they used to say nothing kills bad products faster than good marketing. I think that's more true now as people are thinking about it.
0: How did you start Human Ventures?
1: Well, I met Heather Hartnett, who's the CEO and kind of founder of it. And at, at the time, I had 21st Century Fox had bought the company, my, my company Truex, and I was going there because I wanted to, you know, go work in television and, and understand it at a larger scale like where advertising was headed for the largest advertising medium at the time. And But Heather and I have been talking for a while about how, why New York City is such a fantastic place to found companies, but how hard it is to f- found a company in New York City because there's so many other industries here. There's, there's media and fashion and finance, and so you get lost. So we wanted to do a different type of startup a studio, and so I was just Heather's first backer, you know, her co-founder, but I, worked, I went to then go work at Fox, and Heather built Human Ventures in the studio with kind of a different model. We, we used to have a code, like, this person's a good human. If we set, put that in an email, then the other person had to take the meeting. That's where the name Human Ventures came from.
0: That's awesome. That's really cool. What do you think is maybe, since you've obviously worked with a lot of entrepreneurs, what do you think maybe is some of the most difficult part from kind of going from zero to one or maybe is kind of misunderstood from founders?
1: I mean the zero to one is really interesting because you know people talk about there's different types. There's conviction investing and then there's team and TAM investing, team and total addressable market. When you're zero to one, you're really team and TAM because truthfully, every idea that a founder has on day zero is probably going to change six months in. I can't even imagine the number of business plans that I've seen the first version and that was what the business was because that means that the founder isn't adaptable. They haven't recognized changes in the market. They haven't learned anything along the way. So Zero to one is that. Then take a break from like I don't know make it up 1 to 50 right and in that one to 50 the founders really just going to be adaptable and try to find product market fit but then it gets hard again going from 50 to 100 and that 50 to 100 is is what you were talking about when okay performance marketing's topped out I know I've got product market fit but now I need to scale a brand that matters and like I need to not be not be dependent on performance marketing and so I think those are the like, it's almost like a barbell where we could help at the zero to one and then the 50 to 100. With founders in the consumer market, just like in any of the uh, market, when, when we're talking the zero to one, the two biggest questions are like why now and why you. Like like if you just assume every idea has been had, like people are saying I'm going to win cuz the idea is novel like we have to make sure no one no one knows about it that's not why you win you win because like right now something's different in the world direct to consumer is, is emerging there's a fourth tier in the alcohol uh, ecosystem that is the drizzlies and mini bars and go puffs of the world there's a facebook advertising allows you to to ab test messages in quicker that's the why now then the why you is like what are you going to do that's different than the 10 other people at least that have had this idea, right? Because there has been. And the answer usually to that is, in consumer, especially like there's these natural moats. Like for alcohol, it's production, Im- importing, licensing, route to market, distribution, route to market. All of these things are difficult to kind of get through, and, and almost frustrations to someone who wants to just you know start a digital company with two people and have a billion users. But once you do it, once you do, do the regulatory part, and once you get through the the operations and logistics, then the best product and best brand wins, right? And that's and that's that's a really fun part to be at on the other side. So so looking for people who are going to be the you on that operator side.
0: I know you also look at food and beverage or C B G brands. Does the product have to be differentiated in order for you to be, you know, interested? Yes. It's gonna sound kind of
1: Trite, but like the product's got to be great, right? It's got to be really, really—it's a high quality. Like we do believe in kind of the premiumization of everything, even low-cost items being made better. We're kind of like that, that's important, and that the founder has some sort of like we're not a spreadsheet consumer products investor, right? Like oh, look, this this market's under-invested in, and then this has great margin, and then great. Let's find a product in that space. That's that we're much more on a founder. That is, that wants to craft something t- like unique to the market, and like that will be easier to market later. I, I mean, I, I'll use Comos Tequila as an example. Like Richard Betts is a former Master Sommelier. Like I mean, just like the, the taste is. We knew craftsmanship wouldn't be the problem, and that makes your marketing work harder because then you only need to get people to try it once, right? It, it's it's a lot better than having to like remarket over and over and over again to people. So I guess we look for kind of some pride of craftsmanship in in it, and so if that's the unique. Factor is pride of craftsmanship. Then I think that's that's enough.
0: No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it kind of goes back to your original point of backing founders and what is the actual overall founder vision or what they actually are changing, bringing to the actual category itself. That's quite different, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think tiny organics, which is which is finger food for babies and like helping them develop their first days, they cared. So much about taste profiles for for babies and why this was important, and the, like that was before they got to okay. Now we got to get to product market fit, and like they knew where they wanted to go from the very beginning, and and that was that that was a big deal.
0: Yeah, I mean, huge huge fan of what they're building. I had them on the show, and they're they're great. They're great. Love them, Betsy and Sophia. Since there's kind of so much talk about just media in general, what do you think is still maybe misunderstood about media today?
1: I still think like we talked about the biggest thing overinvestment, like the bottom of the funnel is stuffed and you're not gonna scale at it. So just like your early indicators are not gonna be where your brand will be over time or where your cost of marketing, cost of customer acquisition will be over time. But I also think the bigger thing about media is that the attention economy is, is pretty broken, and what I mean by attention economy, I mean like, theoretically, advertising is the price that people pay for the ability to borrow your attention, right? That that's supposed to be what it is, but there's so many impressions out there, there's so many you know listicles, there's so many like impressions that don't work, and everyone thinks well, okay, well, that's fine, that's that's priced in to the market, and that's why I only buy on an ROI, and so with that, you know, there is. HBO Max, Hulu ad free, Netflix, Disney Plus. You know, even though it says it's going to come with advertising, it doesn't yet. So there's more ways to watch content without ads than ever before, right? Ad blockers, right? Uh, Hulu, uh, sorry, YouTube Red. Like, there's just so many ways to watch content without ads. And if you look every quarter, there's more ad impressions in the world. Like I don't know how that happens. Like I would give my right arm if there are more ad impressions in the world today than there were you know two years ago. it just it it doesn't add up, and so with that, it makes me feel like there's something fundamentally kind of broken in the market, and there's a really interesting opportunity to kind of just buy media a little bit smarter
0: and I guess in terms of buying media a bit smarter, this is more so like use like offline channels per se, right online too, but like but what are you measuring right like are you measuring for an impression,
1: right? And you use an example pretty consistently, which is, again, people keep basically good impression, bad impression, that's not what I'm measuring, like I'm measuring for ROI. and I'm, well, That's great, but there's a lot of things that work towards your ROI working. Is your product good? Or did you price it right? Is it the right audience? Did they do anything? Did you touch them any other way through a newsletter, through a podcast, through a sponsorship? So like, you know, let's just let's just at least concede the fact that multi-touch attribution is very hard to do, and the people who are going to get the most credit are the pr- people who can reverse engineer who's going to purchase your product. So let's let's start there. Then you say, okay, so I do want to buy display. Like, there is a world where there's there are video ads out there and display ads and and sponsorship of of podcast and uh, and you know influencer marketing and uh, there's all these things. But what you should be optimizing for in each channel is likelihood of attention, like, did, did someone see this? Because, like, like, you know, an impression, a viewable impression could load on the page for one second in the bottom corner, and that counts as one viewable impression. Or the impression could be on the page for 30 seconds, and that counts as one viewable impression. Or it could take up the whole page for 20 seconds. That could be a viewable impression. Or an influencer could, you know, it could start a thing but not finish, and that could count as an impression. And so you look at this rolled-up world of of the metrics, and, and they're not the metrics that matter, and instead be thinking about, okay, if I owned this media channel, like if I owned this podcast network, if I owned this influencer network, like if, these, if this was my hype house, what would I ask them to do, like with my brand and product? And then, like, how do I measure the metrics that matter beyond the ones that are easily gamed? Like, if I add a new banner, so if I had a website and I had a hundred thousand visitors to that website every month, right? I have one banner on it to start with. I have 100,000 impressions to sell. If I add a second banner to that website, I have 200,000 impressions to sell. I didn't add more time, attention, or consumer spending to the world. I just added more impressions to the world. We're not correlating what's highly effective with people with with what you really want to buy as a consumer marketer.
0: That's really interesting, especially on the impression side of two. As you say, "Well, what actually is that impression really doing? Is that just like a split second that could count as an impression, or is that actually you know a full screen you know thirty second ad? What exactly is that instead of just kind of bunching them all together and just saying, "You know this is how many like total impressions you have?
1: Is it a native newsletter integration?" Where, you know, like email marketing, incredibly hard to measure. If you measure email marketing only by click-throughs to your, you know, mattress company, you're not measuring it the right way. So the question of each channel knowing, like you have to have a point of view and a belief. As long as I can measure what does matter, meaning reach, association, brand favorability, context. I mean, I think context is going to be a huge thing right now. We've we've overswung to audience, audience, audience. And I think we're going to swing back to quality of attention, and context in which your brand is sitting. Meaning, like what's the content surrounding it?
0: You're also one of the founders of Casa Combo's Brands Group. Tell me a little bit about, about them in terms of how you actually build brands um, at Casa.
1: Richard Betts is the prototypical founder, who is a former master sommelier, an amazing craftsman, passionate about the craft of making. Been, he's been making tequila down in Mexico for 20 years. We knew the product would be absolutely amazing. And then how do you differentiate it? And so hey, marketing gets way too much credit when things work and way too much blame when it doesn't, which is, it's kind of funny that it, it really does hit both sides. And yeah. so this, you know, the brand's on fire, but that's because once people taste it, they're like, oh my God, this is really good. I will say the brand decisions that made it stand out for Comos was that it would be unique, right? That we'd be luxury first, not, not trying to be something that, that, that we're not, that really is focused in on this idea of, Blending the heritage and and the, and the making of of tequila, which is has to be done in the tequila region of Mexico. It cannot be made any place but the tequila region. It's like champagne. But then saying we're going to have a kind of a global mindset and appeal for the brand and make it unique and stand out. And then when people taste it, they'll, they'll understand. And so that was that was the brand decision that went into that. And there's a bunch of Easter eggs inside of it. You know, like the bottle looks different than everything else in a kind of a sea of sameness. But none of that would have mattered if the first time you took a sip of it, it wasn't different, right? So like the quality wasn't there. And so I think we made some amazing brand decisions with it, and we're, we do a lot of pretty interesting marketing. We were in the Oscars on Sunday night, but that... Only makes sense to do because people will remember it, notice it, and then when they do trial it, it's amazing. So otherwise, we would have just been burning money.
0: What's one book that has inspired you personally, and one book that has inspired you professionally? I don't know if I draw a line between the personal
1: and professional. I'll kind of say the two types of books I like the most to think about are like kind of physics origins of biology and like it's how interesting things are. They're really, really small and they're really, really large. I loved Einstein's Dreams, but I just finished. I can, I can look right now just finished a book by Alan Lightman his new one that I like probable impossibilities and it's just you know it takes kind of takes like a philosophy like and kind of poetic Writing over the top of really advanced physics, and so some of the stuff is way over my head. But enough of it gives you so much to think about that I really enjoy it. And the same thing, the other one is uh, Life's Edge, and that's kind of talks about like what it means to be alive and these like ideas of like how biology, like like what makes us up, where we came from, and they're just like that. That to me, it gets me out of you know constantly thinking about the business side of things. I, I do think time is a very like time is the construct in all of both life and physics, and. Time is what I, I you know, I would equate to, you know, attention. Like, like what we spend our time doing, what we spend our time buying, like where we, where we spend our time going. Um, these are the most valuable choices we make. And so, I guess they're only tangential to business. But I, I, when I'm reading or listening to something, I like to, like to get out of the business world.
0: You're very original. We haven't had anyone bring up these books, so really excited to add it to our reading list. That's great. My final question is: What's the best piece of advice that you've received?
1: I can't even remember who said it to me, but I, I remember very early on, another founder, and this has got to be, you know, you're talking 15 years ago plus, said, things aren't as bad as you think they are, and they're not as good as you think they are. Like every day, every single day. And no matter how good you think things are, they're not that good. And no matter how bad things are, they're not that bad. And the roller coaster of kind of that feeling and like the person said it to me and i heard it and i just didn't internalize it and now i look back years later and and like i try to give that advice to founders you can say it but until you realize no it's really you know there's steady there's tomorrow you know you're gonna get after it and you know the other one that's going to sound a little kind of funny, which is like people really don't think about you that much. Like people are like, oh, they're trying to kill my business, and like, oh, this competitor's coming after me, or oh, this this channel partner doesn't want me. And but like most of the time, they're not thinking about you. It's it's really it's really not malicious. Like you're, it, like the if you want to feel, like, maybe this ties to the physics books of like how small we are and it all it makes you feel better. Like it's really no one's thinking about you that much, and so that that gets you out of thinking that people are thinking bad things about you.
0: Joe, thank you so much for your time. This is so much fun chatting. Yeah, same, man. There you have it. It was amazing chatting with Joe. I hope you all enjoyed that. I highly recommend following Joe on Twitter at Joe Marchese. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.